Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. All right, so at the request of a listener uh, who did not directly give me permission to share his name, so I won't, um, but uh, just a reminder, you can make requests uh, via the Anchor app. You can leave me a little voice message, uh, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Trad Dads or comment on the YouTube videos. Um, Today, what I'm going to do is discuss a, uh, a letter from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, specifically the Dicastery for Promoting Integral Human Development. The document is titled, uh, in English, it translates to Economic and Financial Issues. Uh, and the subtitle is Considerations for an Ethical Discernment Regarding Some Aspects of the Present Economic Financial System. And it was published in 2018. I will have a link in the show notes. Uh, if you're on YouTube, um, the show notes are always linked uh, in, the, in the description section. So um, you have access to those. What I want to do is go through this. And I, I do appreciate the suggestion to look at this because uh, I think it's an important, uh, th- this is an important thing to do on this channel or uh, in this, uh, on this podcast uh, to to go through the financial commentary of the church, uh, of, of our uh, bishops and cardinals, and to see uh, kind of how, how maybe how we can sort of uh, provide a little bit of help, I think, to um, interpreting things and, and how economics can be uh, useful. And uh, to kind of see what... Um, you know, uh, the church is telling us in terms of ethics and, and morality regarding these types of things. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's just a, a couple prefacing comments and then I'm going to start diving into it. It's, it's not too terribly long. Um, probably takes 15 or 20 minutes to read it. I'm guessing, uh, I kind of read it and fits and starts and made notes. So a couple things to mention is that, you know, the overall theme here is the, the common good in financial systems and financial arrangements, and uh, it, it definitely takes uh, the the framing that one would expect uh, of, of this pontificate, which is that you know everything is very global focused and everything's very internationalist um, and is is very focused on uh, you know regulatory uh, types of issues. There's very little uh, commentary on sort of you know what I would call like a subsidiary based, uh, you know, civil society types of, uh, um, correctives for sort of financial excesses. So unfortunately there's, there's not much of that. It it is mainly this sort of regulatory, um, kind of focus. And, and I think it's important to preface this and I, and I want to do an episode just addressing this issue, uh, over a long, you know, for, for maybe 30 or 40 minutes itself, but there is, it is legitimate for the church to criticize um, the, the, the economic means that we employ, right? So um, it, it's legitimate for the church to criticize economic means on moral and ethical grounds. And, and the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of the people who will criticize, or excuse me, will, will, you know, be very traditionalist in terms of liturgy and stuff like that, but um, will sort of fall short uh, of of taking those same types of 
more traditional um, ways of thinking into the economic realm. And we'll just sort of be more, um, I guess, libertarian on that front. They, they really, uh, they emphasize this whole idea that, oh yes, the church can tell us all about the ends, right? Or the, or the goals of, uh, you know, an economic system, but the church can have nothing or very little to say, uh, that, that at least that we must give intellectual assent to in terms of the, the means of, um, you know, economic, uh, in terms of the terms of the means of attaining those goals. So it's, it's, it's one of these things where, okay, well, yeah, the church can tell us, you know, what's good, like, uh, you know, uh, feeding the sick and, uh, or feeding the, the, the poor and the hungry and, and taking care of the sick and, um, you know, making sure that people have what they need, right? If we're going to talk about financial stuff, making sure people have money and, and jobs and all that stuff. But the church can have very little to say about regulatory policy or, um, you know, business practices and stuff like that, which, and, and the reason this is said, I think, is because uh, at the end of the day, it's because people want to get away with, you know, they're, they don't want to give up their libertarian take on stuff. Um, because you know, they're, they're right to think that the church will probably disagree with them on that. Um, and I think that that's, that's folly. Now, the most sophisticated version of this is when you hear, um, people say, well, you know, the, the church, uh, you know, their primary expertise is in moral things and stuff like this. It's not in, um, you know, economics. It's so, you know, economics is like, uh, you know, chemistry or something, right? It's a study of a field and, you know, it, the Pope can, can no more declare the laws of chemistry, uh, you know, to be unjust or immoral. Um, you know, he, he can't do that. And so therefore it's the same with economics, but obviously that's totally ridiculous because economics is a social science. It has to do with people and, um, you know, if we're going to have cost benefit analysis, you know, which is a fundamental part of economics, uh, then, you know, those, those things are laden with, uh, with moral information, right? And so this whole idea of specialization is just silly because, you know, the, the fundamental, uh, building blocks of economics are moral and ethical. And, and thus, now that doesn't mean that, and that doesn't mean that, you know, morality, you know, ends as soon as we're, uh, you know, talking about people's individual choices. Of course not. That's totally silly. So uh, in other words, I, what I'm saying is there is certainly room for the church's commentary on these issues. And I want to start off. So, so that's the kind of the framing of the thing is that, you know, we're, we want to discuss sort of the common good and financial arrangements and how existing financial arrangements are, uh, either, you know, sort of, uh, operating morally or not. So what I want to do is I want to start off by reading number nine, and then I'm, I want to kind of discuss it um, and, and a, a little bit of the stuff following. So number nine, it is evident that without an appropriate vision of the human person, it is not possible to create an ethics nor a practice worthy of the dignity of the human person and the good that is truly common. In fact, however, However neutral and detached from every basic concept one may claim to be, every human action, even in the economic sphere, implies some conception of the human person and the world 
which reveals its value through both the effects and the developments it produces. In this sense, our contemporary age has shown itself to have a limited vision of the human person, as the person is understood individualistically and predominantly as a consumer, whose profit consists above all in the optimization of his or her monetary income. The human person, however, actually possesses a uniquely relational nature and has a sense for the perennial search for gains and well-being that may be more comprehensive and not reducible either to a logic of consumption or to the economic aspects of life. The fundamentally relational nature of the human person is characterized essentially by a rationality that resists a reductionist view of one's basic needs. In this regard, it is impossible to be silent in the face of today's tendency to reify every exchange of goods as if it were no more than a mere exchange of things. In reality, it is evident in the transmission of goods among persons, there is always something more than mere material goods at play, given the fact that material goods are often vehicles of immaterial goods whose concrete presence or absence decisively determines the quality of these very economic relationships. For example, trust, equity, and cooperation. It is at this level that one can well understand that the logic of giving with nothing in return is not an alternative to, but rather is inseparable from and complementary to the exchange of equivalent goods. So I really like the, the there's a couple of things I really like about this. So number one, there's a, a discussion kind of about the, the metaphysics of economics and this idea of a good being not just a thing, uh, even though, you know, obviously, um, in, in the teaching of economics, it's sort of, uh, equated. The two things are, uh, essentially the same thing. Um, but I think there's a, there's a good sense in which, uh, you know, we, we do explain to students that the good is not the thing itself. Um, and, and this has to do with, you know, in, in, in economics, this becomes a sort of subjective value thing, which, again, starts to run afoul of, of uh, you know, the church's ethics in a different way, um, and especially if it's understood in a certain, uh, in a certain way. But, 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 what's, but I like, what I like about this, too, is that there is, uh, this is a great foundation for a discussion of the financial system. Because, you know, we start off talking about this idea that, you know, humans have a variety of needs um, and a variety of wants. And, and it's not just about their physical well-being or their financial well-being. Um, that there's a lot of uh, things that go, go with these, um, uh, you know, that, that go into our financial transactions and our, our economic choices. But, and so this is a great foundation in my mind. This is a great foundation for a document that is going to explain to us what kind of changes to policy the you know the, the church would like to see and i think unfortunately as we go through we see some divergences from this uh you know this this uh very good start um but but i do think that you know the aim is right and that you know, the first, the first quarter of this thing really provides a very good corrective to a lot of the, uh, libertarian type thinking that goes out that that's out there saying, Oh, well, you know, just because people need things doesn't mean my employer should provide them. And it's like, well, you know, actually it makes a lot of sense for your employer to be more than just someone who, uh, you know, gives you a paycheck, um, in return for you showing up, right? I mean, again, these, these transactions are laden with, you know, our humanity. 
Um, and anybody who's ever had a job knows that, <laughs> you know, there is a social aspect to everything that goes on in a workplace. And so, um, you know, the best examples of companies, I can think of a company, uh, near my hometown, uh, that, that is, uh, has a, a nationwide or a worldwide, uh, famous product. And it's produced in this tiny little town. Um, and the, the owner of that company takes his employees to, and their families on vacation every year. Um, there was one point when he didn't have a lot of orders coming in. And so he paid his employees to go fix up old ladies houses around this town. Um, he has invested, uh, a ton of money into fun little tourist activities in that town to help keep the place afloat, even though it's a small town. You know, and these are things that employers, you know, that, that, a, that a strong, you know, sort of high quality aristocracy would provide right now. I mean, I use aristocracy a little loosely there, uh, but, you know, this is the guy who owns the plant. Um, and, you know, in situations where, you know, we don't have some kind of cooperative or workers cooperative or something like that, you know, I, I'm not, you know, those things aren't uh, universal, right? We don't always have to have those. Um, and especially in cases where the owner is is um, providing these other uh, things to his employees, you know, and so you might come in and say, you might hear someone say, well, you know, why doesn't he just pay them more money instead of taking them on vacation? And it's like, well, because there's something to that social um, cohesion in the workplace. And that's has value beyond just a little higher paycheck. So they do something different. Um, and I, I just think that's a fantastic example. And, and I've, you know, we've discussed uh, other great examples of this kind of thing before. Okay, so moving on in the document. And I would say 9, 10, and 11 are really good to read. Uh, I'm not going to just read them all. But, but it's definitely in this theme of, um, you know, there is something social to our economic arrangements. And th there is a sort of ethical and moral uh, dimension that rests on top of all of that. So um, I'm going to move down to number 16 because uh, I think this is interesting uh, in terms of usury and interest rates. Uh, so let's see. Uh, in this regard, we cannot but think of the irreplaceable social function of credit whose performance looms large to qualified and reliable financial intermediaries. In this sphere, it is clear that applying excessively high interest rates really beyond the range of the borrowers of funds represents a transaction not only ethically illegitimate, but also harmful to the health of the economic system. As always, such practices, along with usurious activities, have been recognized by human conscience as iniquitous and by the economic system as contrary to its good functioning. Here, financial activity exhibits its primary vocation of service to the real economy. It is called to create value with morally illicit means and to favor a dispersion of capital for the purpose of producing a principled circulation of wealth. For instance, very positive in this regard and to be encouraged are arrangements of cooperative credit, microcredit, as well as the public credit in the service of families, businesses, the local economies, as well as credit to assist developing countries. Especially in this context where the positive potential of money can be actualized, it is is it clear that it is morally illegitimate to expose to an undue risk the credit deriving from civil society by deploying it predominantly for speculative purposes? I mean, so, you know, this is in terms of the context of the document, they're kind of setting up for some discussion that they're going to have later. But, 
um, I think this is really interesting in that, you know, they're, so they're talking about credit. And so credit is just simply, you know, what you, um, sort of your capacity to borrow, right? Your, um, your good, uh, your goodwill or your, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a credit score, right? The score is supposed to reflect, you know, your, um, uh, your trustworthiness as a borrower. And, um, so, you know, just as a side note, there are a lot of sort of financial and, and economically technical terms in here, um, that I think might be somewhat challenging for, uh, people just because the, the common meaning of some of these words is not the same as the economic or financial term. Uh, so you have to be a little careful about that, but, uh, so then it goes on to discuss, you know, excessively high interest rates, um, and how, you know, those are beyond the range of the borrow, right? So, uh, you know, we, we see, we have, of course, all kinds of examples in payday lending and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what's so interesting about this is, um, you know, we have this sort of, we talk about high interest rates and then later on we start talking about, we, we make a, a very brief mention of usury. And again, I think this, this goes to this, uh, sort of divorce in the modern era or well, I guess, you know, maybe the last 60, 70 years between what, for instance, you know, father Heinrich Pesch or, uh, you know, would say about interest, uh, in terms of its ability to sort of share risk and stuff like that, uh, being usury versus here where it seems to imply that, uh, you know, something about interest rates itself being, uh, you know, usury, you know, they don't, they don't say enough to have any kind of clarification, but you know, um, I don't know. <laughs> this is kind of interesting. So one more here before we get to, so this is divided up in, I think five sections and the fifth section is, or the third section, excuse me, is some clarifications in today's context. So, the, you know, here in a minute, I'm going to get to that, that aspect of that part of it. But before I just want to touch on one more of the sort of preface type sections that they're running through here, uh, you know, kind of going through the principles. So number 17, um, they discuss profit. And so I'm just going to, I'm just going to take a, a piece of number 17 here. Quote, such a practice is particularly deplorable from the moral point of view when the intention of profit by a few through the risk of speculation, even in important funds of investment, provokes artificial reduction of the prices of public debt securities without regard to the negative impact or to the worsening of the economic situation of entire nations. This practice endangers not only the public efforts for rebalancing, but also the very economic stability of millions of families, and at the same time compels government authorities to intervene with substantial amounts of public money, even to the extent of artificially interfering in the proper functioning of political systems. So what I take from this, you know, number one, this is, again, um, I think a very reasonable rebuke of this idea that, you know, well, profit can just be whatever, you know, profit is, is whatever you earn, right? As long as you're earning it by the free choice of your customer, it's totally legitimate, right? And you hear this all the time. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the authors here, uh, decided to kind of take this angle on excessive profits, right? So they're obviously not making any kind of recommendation as to like a certain, you know, return on equity that's too high or something like that. But it's interesting in, in, in to me in the sense that the angle they take is essentially just, you know, real politique. It's like, you know, these, these high profits, um, you know, through, you know, speculation, right? Cause you know, 
if you're just a, a normal business doing normal stuff, then, you know, you're, you tend to be in a little bit more of a uh, competitive or at least contestable type market. Um, and that's not always the case, obviously, but what they're, what they're getting at here is this speculative type of thing. And we'll talk more about, you know, specifically what that means here in a bit, but you know, they're talking about, they're talking about really large firms that, um, you know, that, that, that get into speculation and stuff like that. And, and specifically talking about banks, right? So we're talking about, you know, these fancy derivatives and all this kind of thing. Um, and they're just saying that like, you can't earn these high, excessively high profits without a ton of risk. And, you know, with basic, uh, economic or excuse me, basic financial theory would say that, right. That risk requires a reward. Uh, so, you know, high risk, high reward. And so the only way you're going to get those high rewards for a period of time is with lots of risk. Um, and, and the real politic thing comes in because they're essentially saying that, like, look, no matter what, these large institutions that are doing this, you know, they're engaging in this speculation are going to get bailed out, right? It's, you, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't sit there and say that, oh, speculation's fine. There's no problem with speculation. Why are you getting speculation? What's wrong with that? And then at the same time say, well, we should just not bail them out. And it's like, well, if you have institutions that are large enough to speculate in these, you know, crazy derivative markets, they're going to get bailed out. That's just the way it is. So you can't just, you can't just say everything they're doing is fine because the market will regulate it because the market's never going to be allowed to regulate it. It's just not going to happen. And so since it's not going to happen, there's no point in talking about it all the time and relying on it as a check, right? It's just not going to, it cannot be relied on as a check on this behavior period. So there's just no sense in discussing it that way. So I want to move down into this section uh, about, you know, the today's context, right? So now, now they're going to take all of this great discussion about solidarity and, and stuff like this and put it into the context of today's present situation, right? Now, remember this was published in 2018. So it's not, it's not like it's, you know, uh, it's not like it's 12, 13 years old. Uh, you know, the, the crisis and stuff, but there are going to be references to that. Um, and, and it's interesting how pervasive, uh, you know, the, the 2008 crisis has been in terms of commentary. So uh, yeah, I, I had a brief comment, and this is probably just me being too much of a nerd, but they, they start talking about, um, you know, the ideal, uh, you know, globalized, globalized financial system would operate like an organism. And it's like, I, I don't understand that. Um, so for so I guess I'll just read number 19 or part of number 19 here. Thanks to globalization and digitalization, the markets can be compared to a giant organism through whose veins, like life-giving sap, flow huge amounts of money. This analogy allows us to speak of the health of such an organism when its means and structures are functioning well and the growth and diffusion of wealth go hand in hand. The health of a system depends on the health of every single action performed. In a healthy market system, it is easier to respect the, and promote the dignity of the human person and the common good. And I, I just think this is such a this is such an odd theoretical construct because you know I don't I don't like these health analogies. I don't like biological analogies with financial stuff because it gives it an, an air of humanity that it doesn't possess, right? You know, the, uh, the, 
I mean, I, I agree that the, you know, the quote unquote health of a system depends on the health of every single action performed. But to me, that's just a straight up argument for, um, subsidiarity, uh, for a, a smaller system, you know, because the thing is globalized, you know, it, it acts like this giant, you know, Leviathan and, and it's such a bizarre, um, it's such a bizarre framing, I think. And, and I think this, this is my biggest critique going through the whole thing. And, and I'll mention this probably a few times is just that I don't, I don't understand why we, we just have to constantly talk about, um, you know, how big the thing is and just say that, you know, oh, well, we're just going to come up with ways to regulate it. Well, you're not because the, the, if you have a big system, then you have big regulators and big regulators are, uh, difficult and whimsical creatures. So, um, you're going to have problems, you know, it's like who will watch the watchers. I think that's a legitimate critique here. Um, okay. So let me move on to number 20. Uh, so then, you know, using his biology analogy, they continue to talk about how the system needs to have, uh, you know, a biodiversity. So we need a multiplicity and this is a quote, um, such well-being nourishes itself on a multiplicity and diversity of resources, which form a kind of economic and financial biodiversity. This biodiversity represents an added value to the economic system and needs to be favored and safeguarded through adequate economic financial policies with the aim of assuring to the markets the presence of a plurality of persons and healthy instruments with a richness and diversity of characters. I mean, this is just platitudes 101. I mean, this is totally ridiculous. No, what you need is simplicity. If you have this giant system and, and you're okay with it being a giant system, then your critique is going to be, oh, well, we just need to have, you know, lots of giant systems. <laughs> no, that doesn't solve the problem. Um, you need simplicity. Uh, and so I, I don't, I, I just, I don't understand that the direction this is taking. It's so bizarre to me to just say, well, you know, there's, there's no point in arguing against globalization. So let's just argue for, uh, you know, using weird biology analogies. Let's just argue for diversification. Uh, well, if you have a global system, you're not going to have diversification. You just can't. I mean, that's just, it's, it's just logically and, uh, doesn't make sense. Okay. So number 21, just a short quote here. Uh, they refer to regulations that respond to market flux. Um, you know, again, if your system is giant, then market flux is a huge concern, right? If there's only one, you know, I guess as we're seeing with this whole COVID hysteria, if there's only one provider of toilet paper, then, you know, when everybody wants it, they're just going to jack the price up. I mean, there's not much you can do about that. Um, and so when you have a worldwide financial system, you know, uh, and the markets are, you know, are shifting around, you know, the regulatory response is super difficult to get right because the system is so complex. But if you just, sim if you just simplify it, if you just say, we have to have these things smaller so that they're simpler, so that they're easier to regulate, so that the transparency of the regulation itself can be improved. I mean, it's just, there's so much here that can be made better by simplification and, and, uh, you know, 
a localization that's consistent with subsidiarity. I'm not saying everything has to be localized. I'm not saying break everything up. Um, I'm just saying that there is too much size in the system and there simply is no way to create this, you know, ethical regulatory regime that makes any sense. Uh, let's see. Yeah, here we go. Uh, such, so this is a quote from again, number 21, such regulatory authorities must always remain independent and bound by the exigencies of equity and the public benefit. The understandable difficulties in this regard should not discourage the search for and imposition of concordant normative systems consolidated among different nations, but with supranational scope. Right. So again, we just, you know, it's like we just need the World Bank and the UN to uh, make sure that everybody is okay. I mean, this is ridiculous. You, again, they, they, they have this passing uh, reference to, you know, sort of the question of who will watch the watchers. But they just say, you know, it's tough, but that mean, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have it. And it's like, look, if you're going to come here and you're going you're gonna to put out this big, long statement on, you know, the ethics of the financial system, right, and you're going to kind of put together this wish list of things you want, well, be bold. Put together a wish list that's actually going to make some changes that will improve things. <laughs> you know, a giant regulatory system on top of a giant financial system is just going to get bought off so much more easily because the whole thing is so complex. You know, even if you can monitor them perfectly, you know, the monitoring itself is so difficult because the system is so complicated. And and this is what I keep going back to is it's like when, when you consider complexity, when you consider you know, the, the monitoring costs of that complexity, you know, size is not always your friend. And I grant, you know, sometimes again, according to subsidiarity, sometimes, you know, bigness is okay. Sometimes it's justified, but for Pete's sake, um, all we're talking about here is just, you know, a lending to B, right. It does not have to be this massive and complicated thing. It just doesn't. Um, and, and it is when it is simpler, it is easier to regulate and when it is easier to regulate and simpler to regulate and there's less complexity, it is easier to watch the watchers. Uh, let's see. Uh, another uh, one good thing in number 21 here. So quote, uh, the regulations must favor a complete transparency regarding whatever is traded in order to eliminate every form of injustice and inequality, thus assuring the greatest possible equity in the exchange. And look, I think this is a great point. You know, if you review the literature on banking regulations, one, one thing that clearly comes out as a very sensible policy is transparency regs, you know, requirements for the lender to disclose information um, and, and almost in an educational capacity to the borrower. Those are great things. I mean, and even if, you know, the incidence of the cost of some of that ends up on the borrower, um, well, so much more uh, to the good then. Um, because, you know, this is an important thing for them to understand. And I'm okay with, you know, uh, saying, well, you know, we got to have these transparency regs because, you know, this is one of the few things that when you have this giant complex system, this is one of the few things that requires you to at least look at how complex the system is and realize what kind of a problem it can be for the average person to deal with. 
uh, because you see, you say to yourself, well, you know, oh, these transparency rigs aren't going to do anything because people don't understand it. And it's like, yeah, that's exactly the problem. They can't understand it because it's too damn complex. It shouldn't be that way. All right, let's move on to 23 here. So, uh, basically they kind of get into this, um, you know, sort of what I would call the standard discussion of, you know, the stakeholder versus shareholder, um, kind of moral problem, moral dilemma. And, um, you know, it's, it's so interesting because this has been pushed so hard in the past several decades. Um, that every company pays lip service to this stuff anyway. Just go look at a mission statement or a, um, a vision statement for any company, including financial companies, right? They're going to go on and on and on about stakeholders, right? Well, you know, the community and the government and employees and customers and, bu- 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 you know, there's all these stakeholders, right? This is just, this is like standard management theory now. This is not revolutionary stuff. And so every company pays lip service to it. And so, you know, I mean, are we supposed to be happy, right? Are we supposed to be happy? Oh, well, we're not, we're not just concerned about, you know, profits for our shareholders. We're concerned about all these other stakeholders. Okay. And what, where has that gotten us? Right. We have a proliferation of woke capital everywhere. Um, you know, you know, woke capital is abundant. The, the only concrete way to get solidarity, right, which is what we're really after here, right? We're after solidarity. The only concrete way to get solidarity out of the financial system is to reform it along the lines of simplicity and subsidiarity, right? Simplify the system. And when the system is simpler, then people understand what's going on and the humanity of the transaction can be brought to bear, right? Earlier in the document, you know, they, and I forgot to mention this earlier, but earlier in the document, you know, they talk about, you know, more, more ethics education in business schools. And it's like, for Pete's sake, we've had, you know, not maybe not as much as they want, but, you know, we've had ethics education in B schools for forever. You know, and I agree, you know, probably need more Catholic theology in those, in those ethics programs, but, or in those ethics classes. But, you know, the system itself just is not going to respond to that. Right? It, it's just simply not. It's too big and it's too complex. Uh, okay. So then in number six, 26, we get into the sort of standard critique, um, you know, that we've heard for the past 12 years of derivatives and, um, you know, these collateralized uh, securities and stuff like this, uh, mortgage backed securities, stuff like that. Um, and so it's interesting. The critique that they apply is this idea that it's, you know, it's gambling and, and the reason it's gambling, and this is going to get a little technical, but the reason it's gambling is because the person who is trading that derivative, that mortgage backed security or that, you know, that whatever that, that derivative instrument is, is does not have a position in the underlying asset, right? So like, you know, mortgage-backed securities are securities that can be traded that are based on the mortgages themselves, right? And so, like, if you have a, if you've had a mortgage lately, you know, they, we talk about like how the, you know, your bank is going to package those mortgages and sell them, right? They're not going to hold on to that loan; they're just going to service it, right? In other words, they're just going to collect the payments and stuff like that and handle the escrow account. They're not going to, um, 
you know, they're not actually making a profit off of that uh, in, in the sense of they're, they're not exposed to the risk of it is my point. Um, that's been it's been put off in a in a collateral collateralized you know type of you know mortgage backed security, and and so they you know so that that's my point is the underlying is you know the loan on the house, um, and then there's the security that's built on it, and yeah, of course there's way more value in terms of you know total asset value in those mortgage backed securities than there are in the houses themselves, right? But you know. The scary thing is with this critique is that it applies to every kind of derivative. So, for instance, uh, you know, I'm uh, very familiar with the agriculture side of things, right? So farmers, right? So farmers make uh, pretty serious and significant use of um, these uh, commodity markets, uh, you know, futures markets, option, futures markets, option markets, uh, stuff like that. Well, the reality is that futures and options markets are just derivatives. That's all they are. They're derivatives of the underlying commodity, you know, whether it's cotton or coffee or gold or wheat or corn. Those are the underlying assets, right? Those are kind of like the the, the mortgage on your house, right? Uh, in, in the context of the mortgage-backed securities. Well, so, I mean, the lesson we know from these agricultural commodities or, you know, any other type of commodity like, you know, metals and stuff like that is that if we don't have the speculative side, if we don't have speculators just trading the, the, the actual um, derivative itself, futures and options, um, we're not going to have enough liquidity in the market to sustain it. And we've had examples of this. We used to have pork belly markets, and then the liquidity dried up, and so the, the thing's gone. Um, so you know farmers don't have this risk mitigation instrument without speculators so they don't address this and i personally don't know how to address it but it's just my point is that their argument against these you know uh, derivatives and um you know mortgage-backed securities and that kind of stuff applies just as logically to every other future and futures and options contract we have so I don't know where that goes. I don't know if that means that the whole thing, all 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 derivatives are you know irredeemable. Um, it's just it, it's it's it seems like special pleading for me to um, to only apply this to the scary derivatives. Uh, I, I just maybe that's too nerdy, but to me that just seems uh, like special pleading. Okay, so I'm going to skip down to number thirty. Uh, and in, in number 30, they start to talk about this idea of simplicity a little bit. Um, but, but they're just, they just don't go very far. Um, let me just read a bit of 30 here. Um, 30 is, is actually quite long. Um, so let's see such speculative intent on which the world of offshore finance thrives while offering also other legitimate services through the widely diffused channels of tax avoidance, if not directly of evasion and the recycling of money deriving from crimes contributes to an additional impoverishment of the normal system of production and of the distribution of goods and services it is difficult to distinguish if many such situations give life to particular instances of proximate or immediate immorality. Certainly, it is by now evident that such realities, where they unjustly subtract vital nourishment from the real economy, can hardly find justification. 
both from the ethical point of view and from the point of view of the global efficiency of the economic system itself. And I mean, this is just, um, it's, it's, it's interesting because they, you can tell that they understand that this whole, you know, they keep talking about offshore, uh, you know, finance, right. Uh, accounts in other countries, you know, to try to avoid tax consequences and stuff like this. Um, and I'm by no means an expert in that kind of thing. So I'm not really going to say much about, you know, the technical aspects of it, but it's just so interesting to me that, you know, we're, we're going to sit here and talk about how the, the, the globalized financial system flat out encourages this kind of behavior, but yet we're not going to criticize the system itself. We're not going to say that, um, you know, that, that, that the individual countries should take steps to ensure that this offshoring doesn't happen. Right. They're talking about global efficiency and the economic system itself. Well, maybe the economic system needs to become economic systems on a national basis or on a subnational basis in, in some kind of like like in the US. You know, maybe that needs to be the case. Maybe that's the regulatory angle. Right. Instead of talking to the UN and the World Bank all the time, why aren't we talking to individual nations and just saying, look, you just need to turtle up, just close up shop. That's the way to deal with this. We don't need international capital flows to have, you know, again, what at the beginning of this document was this great discussion of, you know, basic human needs and, and, and all that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah, that's all great. That's a good discussion. But we're not applying it, right? We're applying it to, you know, um, to the UN and, and the World Bank. Well, they don't care about that stuff, right? They're, they're interested in the international aspects, you know, we're just, we're not addressing what's important here. Um, they go on to mention in number 31 that allegedly, and there's no citation for this, but allegedly if we tax the offshoring, um, that would alleviate hunger in the world, which is a pretty bold statement. Um, but you know, another way to handle that instead of, instead of, uh, you know, <laughs> using the UN to tax this stuff is just, nationalize it. And, and what I mean by that is each nation should just simply curtail that, uh, you know, that, that offshoring, just curtail it. And again, this is, to me, this is in line with subsidiarity. I'm asking national governments to do something that makes sense at the national level. And so here, the size is totally legitimate, right? We have these large financial firms. We need the central government to take care of that stuff. And so perhaps, right, if we if we uh, are, if each country is allowed to sort of hold on to that tax revenue, maybe then they can figure out how to alleviate country or alleviate hunger within their countries, instead of having the UN decide how to, you know, this massively more complex problem of alleviating hunger across the planet, right? And then so this is where you know some of the stuff from Hayek I think is okay, because you know Hayek's talking about you know knowledge problems and this and that and and okay to some extent that's way overblown right because it it does run up against a moral constraint, um, but at the same time when we're talking about these you know a planet wide financial system, well you know there are obviously just problems with how big this thing is to begin with, um, and so just make it smaller, just shut the thing off. Just, just like we talk about trade all the time. It's the same thing with international trade. The national government has authority. They should be encouraged to use it. Okay. So finally here in number 32, closer to the conclusion, but I'm not really, I'm not going to address any of the conclusion really. I mean, it's, uh, the, the substance was all 
prior to that. So number 32, uh, they call for an international bailout system, right? So again, above, you know, they were talking about sort of the real politique of, you know, this excessive profit stuff, and it's always going to get bailed out. Well, now they're saying, yeah, let's do even more of that, right? So again, this behavior that is impossible to monitor, that is extremely complex, now we're calling for more of it because somehow we think we can impose, you know, a, a moral framework on it. I, I just don't see it, right? If, if you, the, the more complex you make the system, the harder it is to get, you know, the, the ethical and moral behavior because you have to try to monitor it. Um, of course, you know, so they're, they acknowledge in number 32, they acknowledge the difficulty in monitoring the ethical behavior of these people, right? But they just want to give them more power and, um, you know, over a, an increasingly more complex set of regulations, well, you're not going to get moral behavior out of that because there's nothing keeping them from behaving immorally, right? You give them more power, you give them more complexity. There's no way to do oversight. Um, and, and to me, it just strikes me, and I guess I'll wrap up here since I'm going quite long today. To me, this strikes me as a very plain and, and simple case of uh, of, a, of a more um, you know a, a solution more consistent with solidarity and subsidiarity. I mean, it seems like here we're just trying to kind of you know trim around the edges and and sort of cross our fingers and hope that you know this whole this giant system can be reformed while making it bigger and more complex. I I'm not buying it. Uh, I think. You know, to the extent that I'm allowed to criticize this stuff, I think it's I think it's just off. I just think I, I think that it, there's a lack of understanding of the relationship between financial complexity and um, you know opportunistic behavior and um, you know this this humanity that we want uh, that it is part of our transactions. And I, I just I don't think that this document is really you know it starts off great. You know, if we can just use the first section or two, but really the you know the introduction and you know the fundamental considerations that's part two those are both fantastic um, but I just think it's misapplied. I just think the application is is way off so with that, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.